Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. In 1924, André Breton, the principal theorist of surrealism, penned the Manifesto of Surrealism. In it, he questions why we don't trust that our dream world is real. Its scale and scope may bend beyond our waking grasp, and its texture and rules may be so different. But if we can't prove it's not real, we should approach it as if it is. André and his cabal weren't satisfied with just questioning. They applied their curiosities to art and literature in ways that confused and enlivened. And while I don't share their colonial desire to measure and classify our dream world, I do share and aspire to the surrealist provocation to question and then breach our limits. If dreams point to doors that we're taught to keep shut, why not open them? Questioning our limits is a salient and consequential concern. And my guest today is a wonderful example of the surrealist quest in action. I'm in conversation with Elijah McKinnon, the founder and executive diva of Open Television, or OTV, a platform and media incubator for intersectional storytelling. Elijah's insights into how their imagination is supported and encouraged by their pragmatism made me think and reflect on how I engage with my own. If we understand the imagination as a reality of the mind, and if the mind is neurally networked to environments beyond the self, productive possibilities can only emerge from the application of our imagination in the so-called real world. It's not all highfalutin philosophy today, y'all. Together, we explore the difference between surrender and intentional release, the differing demands of and confusion between transparency and vulnerability, and refusing to be bound by other people's ideas and labels. Elijah reflects on their stewardship of OTV, the care required to sustain artistic vitality, and how an entitlement to softness has transformed their sense of duty to themselves and the communities they love. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Elijah McKinnon. Elijah, thank you so much for joining me on Busy Being Black. We've been having a conversation about having you on the show for what 
feels like an eternity. Um, and I'm so glad that it's happening now on the eighth anniversary of OTV. I'm so proud of you and I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored and privileged to be in space with you and I'm a deep admirer and fan of yours. So thank you for holding space for the sacred convening. As you know, to open my conversations on Busy Being Black, I ask all of my guests the same question. How's your heart? My heart is full of love and pleasure and wonder. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about release and letting go as opposed to surrendering. And so a lot of what fuels me and fills my heart right now is opportunities to get closer to that and to explore and be a bit more, I think, adventurous and courageous in my approach to calling what is sacred in and what is divine in. That's where my heart is right now. Surrender is a word for me that I have tussled with. And it's so interesting to hear that you're moving away from surrender, particularly as it relates to the divine, because these two ideas, if you will, are almost always presented together, right? We, we surrender to some higher power, we surrender to some greater divinity, what have you. And so talk to me more about this decision to move away from surrender. What is it about release and letting go that differs from surrender? Surrendering has and holds a space in my heart that I think and believe throughout the duration of my 20s, I had to wave the the white flag, right? Like there was just moments and times where I just couldn't anymore, right? There was just, there was wisdom and knowledge that I did not have access to. And so therefore had to quite literally surrender. And I think entering into the third decade of my life has been an invitation for me to explore what it looks like to intentionally release or intentionally let go or intentionally transition and so much i think of my work and my practice currently is about cultivating invitations to sunset right like how do we send things off right i think a good friend of mine and sister in slayage often talks about how things need to die right like things actually need to be laid to rest so that other opportunities can can bore like can bear the fruits of our labor right and it can really truly come alive and so without going too far into today i really want to get into the practice and have been getting into the practice of like radical permission and so today, and even in our conversation, I want to be using an opportunity to submit myself into some anchors by inviting my ancestors and my elders and my guides to, to bring forth right, the wisdom that I have been able to 
be blessed with, the privilege that I have garnered, and also just the abundance that I do get to share with the world. I think that there are permissions that we have to ask ourselves before we're even able to surrender or let go from these anchors. And for me, I think who I want to call in or, you know, who I want to anchor in today in our conversation are um, a couple of people come to mind and are a couple of ancestors and guides and elders that come to mind are um, Sombonfu Sume, uh, Adrienne Marie Brown, and Patricia Lynn McKinnon, which is my mother. I want to I wanna anchor and use that as a guide for the ways in which I want to show up and allow spirit to speak through me. I love that. I think that's a really helpful... Um a really helpful way to think about the difference between surrendering and letting go. And of course, you know, my resistance to surrender has always been, I'm not letting go of control. Right? <laughs> I'm not going to be told what to do by anyone, ancestors, higher powers, my dad, nobody is going to tell me what to do. I will figure this out the hard way. But then that's also my attraction to surrender and letting go in, in the same vein as well, is that actually sometimes when I am gripping the steering wheel, I'm prone to veer off the cliff. <laughs> so what if I do get a little bit better at um, letting in, right? How do, I, how do I open myself up? And I think that's the journey I've been on this year is, you know, I've, I've spoken about this on the show. We've spoken about this privately, but... I'm focusing on sobriety or practicing sobriety. And, and so much of that is about um, letting myself be touched and moved by the world and not running from myself and other people and experiences. And so I've, I've kind of got a new surrender has a new texture for me now than it's had in, in previous years. I really love that because it also is an invitation for you, right? And I think our world to get a little bit closer to the ways in which our minds work. I think that the mind is such a fascinating like object that we just like hold within us, but also is like outside of us. I think that that's what's so beautiful is I was watching a film recently at a festival and the the point in which like the mind is actually influenced outside of us, right? Like we have a mind that right, is inside of our bodies, but it's actually influenced by what we see and what we hear and what we taste and what we touch, right? That's what actually gives our mind something to reflect and mirror back, right? As to this is what's happening to you, or this is what is, you know, uh, cementing, your ideas around the world that is occurring around you. And I think that that's so, so beautiful to be in constant communication, right? With what is happening around you and what is happening inside of you and how we can get in, I don't even want to say better alignment, but with just more alignment between the two. So I'm, I'm happy that this journey in whatever practice that, that I think, you know, arrives at in your body is something that feels nourishing and is like centered and anchored in care because so much around even again like the surrendering that you were talking about is usually by force and I am just trying to live a life that is anchored in duty over obligation and that is really and truly an invitation versus like a 
forceful intrusion. And so that's that's where I I think get really excited that like when people are talking about this, I'm like, ooh, you're tuned in. Like you understand that there's actually like work that we have to do collectively and individually to get to that space. Yeah, and the, and the last thing I'll say on that is that idea of the mind uh, is so interesting because it's not only that, you know, that our mind is a consequence of and always an interaction with other ideas, people, moments, experiences outside of the kind of porous border of our bodies, but also our mind extends beyond the border of the self, right? Our mind is also, you know, neurally networked, if you will, with people like us and not like us. And it really kind of troubles this distinction of the Western construct of the human, right? This kind of singular entity whose main productive goal in life outside of reproduction and, you know, the propagation of the species is actually to ascend some sort of individualistic higher plane, right? And so this idea that the mind actually is not confined to whatever space we believe it occupies within our body, but is actually part of some much more larger interconnected whole, I think is really invigorating as well. Um, I'm increasingly asking people about what's enchanting them. I find um, we don't often ask black people what's lighting us up and what's bringing us joy. I mean, we're getting much better asking the joy question, but I particularly love the enchanting question because I think it kicks open so many wonderful doors. So what's enchanting you at the minute? Ah, well, as a fantastical queen, I'm quite enchanted by very simple things. I think life is such a gift and it's so precious. And right now, I think what I'm most enchanted by is the practice of slowing down and also paring down. I think finding really beautiful, soft, tender, intimate moments to just exist beyond production or beyond labor or beyond service, right? I think it's something that has just really been enchanting me and also understanding the privilege and the luxury that is held within that pursuit and how challenged I am by that. Like why that why that is a luxury and why that is a privilege to be able to slow down and how the ways in which capitalism and just in general supremacy culture keeps us so far away from that is also what I think delights my ability to advance sort of through life this way with like that perfect balance of like grace and grit and and you know oftentimes I am in these spaces where you know individuals talk about like oh you have this light or you hold this light and I think for so long because of ego I was like yes I am light and like yes it's me I'm the chosen one but what I'm actually realizing is that like I'm a mirror right for those who actually don't have access to that light source right and so when they see me tapping into my power it's it's not envy right it's not jealousy it's not 
uh, anger or frustration, those may be parts of it, right? But what they're actually seeing is someone who has actually cultivated the privilege to be able to tap into that. And so many people, you know, that I get to divine with and share space with, see that as like a window, right? Like, oh, I can actually have that as well. It doesn't need to look anything like that, but I have the power within me. And so it's been a beautiful, I think, space to divine in with the people who I hold sacred and the people who really understand ritual as a form of like liberation. So those are some of the things that I think I've been musing and and meditating on over the past, just like even a couple of weeks. I love that. Um, yes, softness. I've, but, and I have get that energy from you. Um, since we've known each other, that there's this kind of well-guarded softness. And it's made me think about my own softness. You know, how do I... Um, how do I also know that um, I don't just want to be able to rest? Um, I want to be able to be soft, to be tender, to be properly vulnerable, not like a kind of... <laughs> sometimes, I was joking with my friend the other day that the vulnerability I sometimes embody feels like a fabricated one, right? Like it's a, it's safe. I know just how vulnerable I can be, and I guard that kind of very specific <laughs> vulnerability, if that makes sense. Um, but there's still a barrier there, right? There's a barrier that I'm that I'm working on taking out a little brick by brick. Absolutely. I mean, there's something that is quickly coming up for me. I was attending a leadership training a couple of weeks ago, and a fellow executive was practicing this modeling that I really, really loved. And it was there's a difference between being vulnerable and being transparent. Right. And right. Right. <laughs> your face said it all. <laughs> my face said it all as well. Oh, yeah. Well, that says a lot since I was considering the amount of Botox on my face. So if you're seeing an expression, <laughs> that means it's really at home. <laughs> but it's so true. You know, like I think that many of us either fall on the spectrum of like we can be really, really vulnerable, right? And in practice or we can be very transparent, right, in theory. And so it's about, I think for me, or what I've been trying to get closer to is like, how do we have a bit more balance? Cause I think I'm really good at being transparent, right? Like I'm very good at telling the truth, right? This mm. is what's happening. <laughs> and I'm learning how to become more vulnerable, right? And sharing that with people who I build trust with. And those are the things that I think are different between the two is that like, you know, being transparent, you don't really need to establish trust, right? You don't really, you just, you're just telling people sure. yeah. things. <laughs> and it's not a deeply rooted in transaction, right? I don't have to listen to your response of my transparency. <laughs> like, I don't have to be engaged. Wow. This, I'm, my mind is blown um, because that is a really helpful um, heuristic. I can't think of a, a more accessible word than heuristic because I, I haven't thought about that transparency, vulnerability dichotomy. And that actually brings up a lot of questions for me in my mind, which I'll process offline. But thank you for putting that into my orbit. Um, I really love 
uh, an Instagram post of yours. It's from a couple years ago. And so I don't know if it's even appropriate to bring up, right? We all change so much in the, in the course of the day, let alone a couple of years, but I imagine it might still resonate with you. Um, uh, the post says, quote, I'm allergic to your lack of imagination. And the caption says, quote, the 2020s are death giving flop era vibes. Put me on ice and wake me in 2030. Or better yet, just keep me on ice and don't wake me till society has collectively decided to love, cherish, and protect black people as much as they do their greed, ego, and patriarchy. And now, as then, it makes me think of a conversation with Patrice Cullors. Um, she was in conversation with Krista Tippett on, on being and said that's, I'm paraphrasing, someone imagined chains, someone imagined guns, someone imagined death. Our job is to imagine something else. How are you tending to your imagination in this moment? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. And I think something that comes up for me is a quote by June Jordan. It's, it goes, if you are free, you are not predictable and you are not controllable, right? And so I like to think of my imagination as like a portal to a place that I know. I think sometimes we often like, or I often will think of an imagine, imaginative space as like this unknown, right? It's this other world. And like, while that can be true, right, because multiple truths can exist at once, I actually like to think of my imagination as like a place that I do know, right? It's a place that I do spend a lot of time at. It is this place that I'm very familiar with. And it brings up this notion around just like my upbringing, right? I think when I hear that question and like when I think about imagination, I didn't grow up in this incredibly like fantastical surrealist home. My 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 upbringing and like my roots are very like pragmatic through survival right like as you know the child of a partnerless parent I was taught to be pragmatic because that's how you survived right that's how you you learned about the world around you and I'm often quite weary of you know individuals who proclaim themselves to be visionary but like can't understand the difference between balancing dream with action because we can live in a world that's like yes let's like interrogate all of these systems and like let's you know dismantle everything right but if we're not simultaneously building something else right and placing ourselves inside of that world right now then when we build and you know or when we dismantle all of these these systems and when we interrogate all of the ways in which these these solutions have failed us we are not actually prepared right we are not prepared and invested in what is on the other side and so i think a lot about my imagination and the grand visions that i have and hold through action Right. So a lot of that is listening and observing. I spend a lot of time just like listening to people, listening to what they say, listening to what they don't say so that I can deduce like where my gifts bring value to a space. Right. Okay. Because oftentimes, and I'm getting really good at this, which I'm really excited about and also incredibly terrified about, oh, is that like, I'm so good at removing my gifts from the table, 
right? Like I'm really good at like, oh, these gifts are not valued, honored, or respected here. We're gonna take them now, right? And we're not, we're not letting you know where they're going, right? We're not letting you, we're not giving you coordinates. <laughs> we're not, we're just saying, thank you so much. These gifts no longer hold value in this space. Best of luck to you. And I think- Or as we say, be well. <laughs> Be well. Oh my goodness. Be well. Or bless your heart. Bless your heart. You know, bless your heart. Yeah. I think, I believe that my imagination is like protected through solitude and reflection, right? That's how I truly protect it and I guard it. And I love that you said that, like, and I, I love that you pick up on that is that there is an action in guarding one's like beauty that they that resides within them not like just external beauty but like the internal beauty and i think of gifts as a form of that right whatever gift you hold whatever wisdom you have garnered whatever knowledge you you know feel called and compelled compelled to share it's such a gift right and it's an honor that you hold that and what you choose to do that is actually where power resides and so for me when I'm thinking about the imagination, I'm thinking also about like the adult learning cycle and how like, you know, there's like experience and, and like action, right? And then there's like reflecting and thinking. And I feel like imagination is like right in between those like axes. <laughs> Somewhere right in there is where my imagination lies. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And you're making me think of, again, this thing's actually to earlier in our conversation about the mind, right? Because if we think about where we might place our imagination, right? For those of us who are um, who are more spatial in the way we think, right? We might need to place it somewhere in the body or some something like that. We need to visualize it somewhere. Um, I think that, and I'm perhaps guilty of this, not guilty, I'm perhaps prone to do this as well, to think of the imagination as a protected space not for anyone else that doesn't really, that isn't necessarily a part of me, right? Mm. It's a place I have access to because I love my solitude, right? And I guard it fiercely Mm -hmm. and I love being on my own. I find myself so entertaining, but I also just love being in my head and doing what pleases me, right? So so solitude is, is, is immensely important for me. And it's also when I do that imagination tending, right? I think of my imagination Mm. more as a garden, Right. And so what I'm learning about now is how am I <clears throat> how am I taking what's in this kind of beautiful abstract place and actually living it, right? Bringing it back, bringing the imagination into the world. I think I do that with busy being black, but the things I, I want for myself and for other people as well, too. Um, I think it's so helpful to see the imagination as something to be shared in a more um, generative way. I completely agree. And I love that you're on this journey because it also just means that everyone that you touch is also experiencing that along with you, right? In whatever ways in which it invites itself into their body. So like that, that to me is what is so powerful. And it actually brings up a quote from, it reminds me of a quote of Patrice Cullors around like, you know, we can feel sad, we can feel hurt, we can feel demoralized, right? But like, we can't give up, right? That's like the that's the, the the nucleus like we can feel all of these things right and every one of them can be true but like as long as we find some 
form of inspiration and drive to push us forward like that's the imaginative space that I want to be in I don't I mean I was asked the other day like you know oftentimes people like ask me what do I do and I'm just like oh I'm a pop star or like I'm an executive diva and I'm like because like I won't be bound by some title or some you know um, idea or identity that you believe is what allows me to move throughout the world, right? What allows me to move throughout the world is my agency and autonomy over my fucking body, right? Like that's it. And then whatever whatever wig I decide to put on, yeah. <laughs> it, it is what I right have imagined, right? So like if I choose to wear a short kinky bob, then that's that's what it is today, yeah. right? It's a short kinky bob day. But tomorrow it may give like, you know, a 40 inch yakky unit. And like, that's, that's my imagination. <laughs> and I think that that's what's so beautiful about also being black and queer and holding the intersections that reside within them is that there is this other space that we get to tap into that I'm just really, really excited that you're, you're doing as well. Kindred spirits. Busy Being Black returns in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. My conversation today is with Elijah McKinnon, the founder and executive diva of OTV, a nonprofit streaming platform and media incubator for intersectional storytelling. This year, OTV celebrates eight years of transforming the way film, television, and entertainment industries support communities like ours. Elijah says the transformative impact of the platform is maintained by both modeling the world we want to live in and through anchoring artistic vitality in care and community. And before we jump back in, be sure to check the show notes for a link to sign up for Field Notes, Busy BM Black's newsletter offering to encourage your wanderlust. Congratulations on eight years of OTV. It's a tremendous accomplishment. Um, I think for those who don't know, it might be helpful for you to talk about what OTV is first as a vision and then what it does in the world as in, in action, as you might say. I love that question. And I, one, cannot believe I'm old enough to be the founder of an organization that is eight years old. I, I'm just, I feel like I'm, I'm just like, what was I doing? Like, why didn't no one tell me? Shouldn't I have been out in the streets somewhere? Um, but I think, yes, eight years. It's quite lovely and such an honor to be able to continue doing this work and to have watched so many, you know, organizations that have, you know, started around our, you know, inception that are unfortunately no longer here or, you know, that are continuing to do this great work. It's like just amazing to be in an ecosystem that is is actively challenging the way in which media portrays and you know identifies and 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 mobilizes and activates like our stories right stories of intersectional people 
stories that are oftentimes missing from, you know, not only the big screen, but even like what small screens, right? They're, they're really, really challenged by our brilliance. And so OTV really serves as an intervention of just a new way, an alternative way, right, of making media. And so through our work over the last eight years, we have arrived at a nonprofit streaming platform as well as media incubator that really centers artistic vitality and expression by intersectional artists. Intersectional artists really being defined by individuals who are marginalized not only by market but also society because of the race, gender, sexuality, nationality, disability, or other identity markers that keep them right from not only entering the market but also allowing their stories to be told authentically. And so what we've done over the past eight years is really develop an ecosystem that is really void of the ways in which media has dictated the way that our stories get not only told, but the way that they arrive to our communities. And so we really sit kind of right at that intersection of, yes, empowering artists, but also engaging community. And oftentimes, as a you know media network or a platform or an incubator, you really have to kind of take one on, right? It's either you're gonna engage in the artist or you're gonna really stimulate the community. And what we've been able to do so beautifully over the last, you know, eight years is build, you know, a community that really supports our artist. And that is what I think continues to bring me back to this work and helps motivate new and exciting ways to engage in this really volatile industry. A phrase that stands out to me is artistic vitality. And um, just this morning, I was reading a, um, an essay by Okwi um, Enwezor, the late art critic and curator. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. I should have YouTubed um, <laughs> him giving a speech or something. But... Um, he's basically responsible for a reintroduction or kind of a recalibration of the lens through which black African people are seen in the art world. So he did these kind of huge installations and exhibitions, Documenta 15 or Documenta 11, um, the Venice Biennale. He did these huge interventions um, to kind of challenge the kind of white Western um, vampiric lens, a way of looking at, at Black African people. And I've also been reading John Berger, the late art critic, who challenged our ways of seeing and understanding art as a product of an artist who was going through things and experiencing the world and trying to say something and that we have to pay more attention to the life of the artist. And so I guess artistic vitality is really standing out to me in this moment, particularly as it relates to the building of a community as well. I mean, how do you think about artistic vitality as something to aspire to and nurture? I guess, how do you do it is what I'm asking. How do you vitalize the artist? <laughs> oh, that is such a stunning question. I mean, I think it centers care. It centers care over production. 
and extractive practices. I think that there is just history that dates beyond me, right? And several decades beyond me around the harmful and extractive nature of the film and entertainment and media landscape, right? Just as a whole. And so I believe, and OTV's mission believes that through a two-pronged approach, right? In terms of a theory of change is that we all know, right? Through working knowledge and just what is happening in our world that like, the media ecosystem, right, is very, very volatile to individuals who hold multiple marginalized identities, right? And we won't even need, we don't even need to get into them because of the ways in which we universally know how challenged, right, this ecosystem is. And so our, you know, theory of change really presents itself to repair that, right? Like, how do we really repair that? What are the ways in which we need to isolate and specifically call in the opportunities to minimize harm? So like, that's one. And then two, simultaneously, we got to build a whole new thing, right? Because like, we can't wait <laughs> for that, 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 that harm to be repaired. So we got to do something else on the, on, on, on the periphery. And so when I think of artistic vitality and when I think about the ways of an artist having everything that they need to feel nourished and empowered, I think about bravery. And again, this is just through our theory of change that in the ways in which our artists have come to us and been empowered, right, to say, this is what I want, this is what I need, that has a ripples effect in, in, in a sector, right? Because once you expose someone to a possibility model, they can't unlearn that, right? It's actually, I was just doing some like random research around like neurodivergence and like, it's actually impossible for the like brain to unlearn something. Like you don't unlearn it, you can like isolate, but it doesn't, you don't unlearn, right? There's no like removed from brain. It's not like a control alt delete, you know? <laughs> so, what it is, is it's actually sparking opportunities for people to recall things that they've experienced. And bravery is such a big piece of the work that we do because it's not only providing an access point for someone who has a lived experience where they maybe have not been able to be incredibly brave, right? Or not had the opportunity to be, you know, steeped and surrounded in courageous opportunities or conversations. But when they leave, right, from whatever, you know, canon or opportunity or experience that we have been able to activate, they know that it exists, right? It's real. And so when I think of artistic vitality, I'm thinking about something that is sustained through an ecosystem, right? It isn't something that is, you know, elected, right? And it isn't something that is done in isolation. It's something that everyone has to subscribe to or it doesn't work. And what I, what I love about the work that we get to do and what I love about the stories that we get to amplify is that they're, they're coming from, you know, the heart, right? And I, you know, I've talked about this a lot with uh, Marvin Maddox over at FGUK around like how storytelling is heart's work, right? 
it really is heart's work. And so we we get to do that and we get to center it in a way that reminds artists that like your gifts bring value to the space, however they're arriving. And we are here to help you nourish that to the best of our abilities so that when you re-engage in the, the big, big wild, wild, wild world, right? You're able to anchor in something that is tangible, right? That you created, that is of you, that no one can take away. And that, like, that is vital, right? That is vital because it is yours. And that to me is what's so exciting about the work, but it's also, you know, what is also the most challenging about the work, right? It's it's really challenging to, you know, meet artists where they are at the variety of spectrums in which we serve and help them out of where they are, right? Because so much of this work is, you know, self-deprecating and and really just ourselves getting in in the middle of it and so it is one side really beautiful but also on the other side very challenging you know the phrase that was bouncing around i feel like it was just given to me um we become human again right if we think about the ways queer black people are objectified fetishized dehumanized the way that there's only certain queer black stories that the media machine wants to amplify, that there are there's an actual scarcity of opportunities, right? Not not a fabricated or or a scarcity, um, and that so much of this experience can be dehumanizing and demoralizing, and that I'm so enlivened by the idea that queer black people encounter you and your team and the community at OTV and feel like they're becoming human again, right? That that how they feel um, matters as much as the stories they want to tell. Um, and the second thing I want to flag is around storytelling. There's a wonderful quote from Chinua Achebe. If you look at the world in terms of storytelling, you have, first of all, the man who agitates, the man who drums up the people. I call him the drummer. Then you have the warrior who goes forward and fights. But you also have the storyteller who recounts the event. And this is the one who survives, who outlives all the others. It is the storyteller, in fact, who makes us what we are, who creates history. The storyteller creates the memory that survivors must have. Otherwise, surviving would have no meaning. This is very, very important. Memory is necessary if surviving is going to be more than just a technical thing. Oh, I love that. And that resonates with me so incredibly, like, deeply, especially around, like, just outlasting, like, the test of time, right? Because that really is something that isn't on our side, right? It, it's something that is constantly progressing and constantly changing the ways in which we in, engage with the world. And so the storyteller really is the individual who is the keeper of our secrets, right? It is the 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 angelic troublemaker who also has the opportunity to say like, this did happen or it didn't happen or it happened this way or from my from my from my recall right <laughs> from my experience this is what I saw and you know at the end of the day I think a big part of artistic vitality is shape-shifting right it's uh being able to really allow yourself to mold and change the ways in which your gifts right are able to land 
that's really what it is. The thing that's just occurred to me is that we are all already storytellers. If we think about the murder of our sibling, O'Shea Sibley, or indeed any other murder of any other queer black person since the advent of social media, the stories that we adopt as social media citizens, as citizens of the world of the internet, and that we disseminate, right? That what we choose to share means that we become the storytellers, right? And I think that so many of us have either have had that fact obscured from us. We don't see ourselves as the storytellers. We, we don't even see ourselves participating per se in the kind of weaving of a kind of larger, more damaging story. Um, but that that's actually what we've been made to do, even if we don't intend to, is, is be the storytellers of very limiting narratives about black life broadly, but more specifically about who queer black people can be in the world. That's the kind of aha moment I just had that we're all already storytelling. And that's also, I mean, in just the OTV perspective, I think that that's what a lot of people don't understand is like how much of a privilege it is to have our own platform. You know, like we aren't beholden to anyone beyond our community. And so we're not waiting for approval. We're not waiting for affirmation. We're not waiting for, you know, industry to validate or affirm the work that we're doing, which then creates a whole other system of gatekeeping, right? Because we now are the keepers of a platform and we choose, right, what is and isn't, right, being platformed in any given moment. And that comes with a huge duty and responsibility that I, right, in my role, am actively trying to learn because there's a, there's this, there's this thing that happens and that I've just witnessed over the last several years as an executive is that, you know, I'm complete, right? I must know everything that, it, that must, you know, exist in the world around intersectionality, right? <laughs> and every issue at any subject matter of every time of the day, I must have a recall and experience to relate. Like, you know, and, or anytime I walk into the room of, you know, uh, my transness or my queerness or my blackness must speak for everyone the thousands of people (laughs) right you are a promise of the future simultaneously exactly and that to me comes with a huge like invitation to dismantle right because like i do not speak for everyone right but i understand that when i show up into a space i am never showing up alone right and i'm also not you know removed from the fact that that also is where a lot of my anxiety, right, is derived from, right? And that is what fuels a lot of my depression, right? It's because of that weight that society places on bodies that look like ours. And so what is so important for us at OTV is that we are constantly taking moments for ourselves, right, to center and anchor and care, because at the end of the day, no one else is going to do that work for us, right? And if we want to actually change a sector, we have to model that behavior, right? It isn't something that is going to change overnight, and it isn't something that we may even rip the benefits of in our lifetime, right? And, and fully and holistically. But I know that the small actions that we take towards centering care and anchoring ourselves in something that is beyond production and labor is what allows the storytellers of our time to really show up bravely and authentically. And that to me 
is like legacy work, right? Like that's the thing that I'm more interested in than just like entertainment. <laughs> yeah, and I want to connect you to Michaela Wuna, um, mm. the uh, photographer and engineer and artist who in his research um, into you know, queer African histories, you know, highlights the role of the queer trans um, person in Africa historically as the shaman or the gatekeeper, right? The gatekeeper between worlds and planes. And that part of the role of the gatekeeper is as a conduit for messages, communication, to help people um, in their rituals, um, so we understand gatekeeper as you've challenged here as this someone keeping something from us, guarding an archive that either we are in and we need to get to or keeping us out of a space that we have title to or in the kind of um, queer um, African sense of gatekeeping as, as those who guard the gates to um, enlightenment, to completeness, to wholeness. Yeah, I wanted to offer yeah, that I love to you. That. Yeah. Thank you for that offering. That's beautiful. So I, I touched on this very briefly earlier. Um, one of the things, elements, offerings that I've been so um, attracted to in you um, is your softness and how you guard that softness and make space for it. Um, and it's a softness that's so intentional. So as our conversation comes to a close, what is it about softness in particular that is so important to you? Yeah, this is a, a really beautiful question. And I really enjoy any invitation to lean into the softness just because so much of my like life and the facade of being an executive diva, right, is around this rigidity and like harshness and like it's hard, right? Everything has to be so polished and, you know, presented in a really digestible and compact way and the skin has to be popping and the beard has to be bearding and the, everything just needs to be something and so I think when I meditate on softness it is such a beautiful invitation for me to remind myself that like I am not invincible but my strength moves beyond measure right like yes I do break right I, I do have moments where I am tender and I have to heal my wounds but the reason why I show up the way that I do in that guarded sense, right? right, In terms of guarding my softness is because I have just experienced so much loss, right? I have experienced so much trauma. I have experienced so much debilitating sorrow in my life that those parts of me, right, are always healing, right? They are always in conversation with what I am experiencing in my, my world around me. And so in order to just humanize this hardness that I have had to endure, right, and, and the resilience that I have had to embody, I think it is imperative that I allow myself the opportunity to experience softness and care and nourishment in a way that really informs right and activates parts of my body here on this plane 
right on earth right this is you know we can talk about divining and we can talk about going to these other worlds but right now like what i have learned is that because of the body that i'm in it is expected for me to endure pain and trauma at exuberance amounts <laughs> of it as a rite of passage right that is how i get my access right like uh, how much can you burden before you crumble and that is no longer a way that i want to live i am un i have, i've um, it's unfortunate that i've had to watch so many black women black queer people black trans people black trans femmes right <laughs> have to burden and shoulder so much of the world's like pain and be again like you said that that conduit right of building a bridge or building opportunities or building anything where any nothing exists right which is so much of what i know our experience is to hold i need something to indulge in right that is beyond my function and labor in this world like i don't want to die here and be like that bitch worked that's not <laughs> that's not what i'm i'm here for you know i'm really here to spread some of that softness and that sweetness and the wisdom and the gifts that have been imparted upon me, which when I reflect on them, I don't think about, you know, my mother as a resilient woman. Yes, she was, but what she really actually taught me was care, right? How to care for myself and to care for other people and how doing both and or one at the same time is beneficial to everyone, right? So when I think about softness, and I think about how I can share it or, you know, why it's so close to me and why I revere it as something so precious is because I think I'm entitled to it. I'm entitled to be soft. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that on that. Yeah. That's on period. <laughs> you know what? I want to um, share something with you. Um a, uh, a saying, if you hold me while I fantasize, I'll guard you while you sleep. Mm. Mm. Yes. Right? And I thought of that Absolutely. because part of, I think, what we're doing together, here's, here's what I'm thinking. I was watching um, Kokomo City by D. Smith. Mm -hmm. And what didn't come up in reviews very often or at all of any of the reviews that I saw about Kokomo City was the tenderness and intimacy and humor, right? It was mm. all about raw and apologetic black trans, you know, all of the kind of tropes associated when a black trans woman, sex worker in particular, opens her mouth, right? And what wasn't noticed and what stood out to me was the softness, right? The laughter that what Dee managed to communicate with Kokomo City, I think so beautifully, was that when black people come together in these intimate moments where we, we come undone, right? We can be soft in a way that we can't be in the world. And so I'm, I, I'm thinking about softness like that too, that part of the joy of being in community. And, and I guess linking back to our kind of joint de uh, desire for solitude is that we do need people around us who will guard us while we sleep. 
right? And who will hold us while we fantasize and who can say, hey, they're being soft right now. Let me step up to the plate. Um, yeah. And so softness is something also collective. Softness as a form of communion. Yeah. And divining. No, I love that, that, that reference around becoming undone because for me, so much of this year in my current life is really getting close to the person I am when no one's watching. Hey. Right? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That <laughs> is just jumped no, on my back. I mean yeah. <laughs> the emphasis and then they're on my neck yeah. all the time. They're like they they, they it's usually in the throat. Yeah. And they're like, get it out, get it out. Um but it is because I think so much of what I have learned and I think we talked about this before, but like so much around who I am, I learned through thousands of literal strangers right like i have no idea who these people are but they're telling me who i am and i i unfortunately believe them and so now with such a beautiful invitation to myself is that like i actually get to have agency on who i'm becoming right like i have lived many lives and i will live many more and so who i choose to become is a softer more kind person in this world and you know i was at that current, you know, that leadership retreat, someone mentioned to me how, you know, they were observing me throughout the the training and they were saying like, you know, yeah, yeah, you're a really powerful person. You're a very fierce person. But what makes you actually the most powerful and the most fierce is that you don't exert dominion. It's like you actually model how to be fierce and powerful within yourself so that other people can get in line. Right. And I was just like, come on, come on, mirror. Cis, man, yeah. <laughs> cis straight man coming through with observations and, de- and deductions. I was like, you better, you better see it. And a part of that is by literally leading with softness because I just witnessed so many people be forceful. Right. I witnessed so many people really exert that power in a way that doesn't land with softness. And like for me, like I go to sleep every night. And I sleep real sweetly. Okay. I let this world go and I go to another place and I love it there. And then, you know, spirit brings me back into body and then I wake up and I'm like, okay, I can do it here, I guess, again. You know what I mean? Like I can I can be down with this because I hold that softness as like a sacred part of my divination. And that to me, I love that you brought in the undone. Cause I'm just like, how do we become more undone? I want to be unravel me, you know? Like that's, that's so much of, I think what we need in this world is just to let it all out. However you can do that with, you know, respect and care. Yeah. And, you know, and, and coming undone is, 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 is not only in this process of living many lives and becoming something else. And, but also knowing that we can come undone and be put back together. Right. Like, yeah, that's part of it too. I think that's the resistance to softness can be, I can't, I can't come undone here because who will put me back together? Yeah. Well, because it's work. It is work. (laughs) Yeah. It is work. And that's the other part is that like, I would, I wish that I could just say, that I woke up like this. I mean, close. It's close to. <laughs> it's, getting, it's getting better, but it does, it is the work. It's the work. And like you said, it's the guarding 
of what is sacred that allows you know us to show up to this work that we have been called to do and that to me is where the privilege and the, and the honor lies is that like oh i get to do this you know what i mean i think you know i have a um a colleague that i i, I work with and they imparted some knowledge upon me chris walker a couple of maybe two years ago or maybe a year ago but you know it was recently around this idea around like instead of like i have to do this right it's like i get to do this right like i i get to do this like i'm invited to do this isn't someone's not no one's forcing me (laughs) to do this and i love that invitation because it it also honors the fact that you have agency within your body to make decisions over the governance of your life right and so by you saying you get it means that you had you had you had an option you could have left but you chose to stay and that to me is why i i find so much power in softness because it allows you to actually take a step back and pause around the ways in which like the natural response is to fight right and you said it so beautifully that like we do need people who who are fighting, right? And for me, my invitation is that my fight just looks different now. Elijah McKinnon is the soft and fierce leader of OTV, a nonprofit streaming platform and media incubator for intersectional storytelling. You'll find more information about Elijah and OTV in the show notes. And don't forget to sign up for Field Notes. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.